Hello, I'm Greg. Welcome to a talkback episode for Walk the Earth number five. And in this introduction, which I'll try to keep short, I also feel like I need to make a reference back to the recent Inappropriate Conversations recording, number 231, Letting Justice Roll 2, released at the end of July of this year. The reason for that is that in the news today, there's a couple of headline items that probably can't be ignored, and part of the reason I do talk back episodes is it does give me the ability to speak briefly in introductory material to current events. There has been a decision made by the law enforcement community in Kentucky regarding the killing of Breonna Taylor, and it's as frustrating and outraging as you'd expect it to be. Despite the fact that the officer that is being charged with some reckless endangerment for bullets fired into apartments not occupied by Breonna Taylor, despite the fact that he was already reprimanded for uh, engaging in uh, gunplay in this manner already by recklessly shooting into her apartment from the outside, a violation of police policy, but I guess from the district attorney perspective, or the equivalent in Kentucky, it wasn't a criminal act. To fire recklessly and indiscriminately into Brianna Taylor's apartment, whether he actually was the owner of the gun that fired the bullet into her or not, but he is being charged criminally with firing the weapons into adjacent apartments. The bottom line is, I'm a political moderate. It means I have aspects of me that are very conservative and aspects of me that are very liberal, that I'm not an average or a mean or a median in any sense of the word. I get to moderate because of the blend. And one of those places that I'm politically conservative is I have a my home is my castle mentality. And a lot of people who are part of uh, guns rights organizations, the National Rifle Association, feel, at least on paper, the same way I do. But it doesn't show up here. Because by breaking in having not clearly enough identified themselves in an apartment with hundreds of people living in it, the police in Kentucky could find, what, one person who said, yeah, I think I heard him identify themselves as police, where other people did not hear a proper identification. And where is the political conservative gun rights, my home is my castle advocate group in favor of, um, well, criminal charges for the police who killed Breonna Taylor? Well, we now know the answer. And the answer is there isn't going to be any backlash and there aren't going to be any meaningful criminal charges against police officers. Conveniently, the police officer that the the uh, district attorney is choo- choosing to charge with any crime whatsoever is the one who also, because of the notoriety of this event, because of his face being published in social media, has been identified separately by numerous women as someone who has behaved in sexually inappropriate ways either in the line of duty or while moonlighting as a, you know, as a bouncer or security for a bar or in other, in other capacities. In other words, this person finally emerged as such a problem that the police decided, well, we could charge him. After all, he's got some sexual assault allegations against him as well. Might as well, you know, try to appease the masses. Well, it doesn't really work for all the reasons that I've outlined. But I wanted to start with Brianna Taylor in part to kind of highlight the fact that when you're recording an inappropriate conversations form of podcast, I have found that it's almost impossible to not get something wrong. It depends upon the level of precision that's required, the level of accuracy, in other words. But I, when I listen back to shows, especially to prepare for talkbacks, you know, to make sure that that's an episode worthy of being called back, or if there's something in the intro I should share to highlight a particular element of that one recording. It's not the case in this case. Walk the Earth 5, I think, was 
you know, a pretty good representative example of what Walk the Earth started out as, and to many degrees what it still is, raising a question, answering the question. But it wouldn't surprise me if I have got some subject for agreement, if I've mispronounced a name, uh, things along those lines. It's not hard to find something wrong in every single past episode of any sort of extemporaneous recording that you might make. In the case of the Letting Justice Roll 2 regarding Brianna Taylor, uh, some of the things that are not 100% accurate is I was under the impression, based on the limited information available, that the police had shut off police cameras, body cameras that were on them in the moments before the uh, warrant was executed inside by knocking through their, their door and breaking into the apartment. And the fact of the matter is that that's not 100% true. News accounts that I've subsequently and very recently seen from New York Times, among others, suggest that in Kentucky, when the body camera laws were written and put into effect and when those policies were implemented, um, narcotics departments, by and large, just exempted themselves from those rules. So it's not like a camera that was on the police was turned off on the way in the door right before the shooting started. It was that this particular group of police officers, because they were narcotics officers, had exempted themselves you know, a priori from any sort of body camera policy to begin with. I don't think that makes it better. I think that if we want to execute an improvement to policing, one of the key weapons in the hands of police officers is the documentation provided by body cameras to protect them against false accusations and false charges. And eliminating that stream of evidence, in fact, eliminating any stream of evidence when crimes are alleged, seems to me to be highly problematic police behavior in the first place. And to do so way in advance, to say, hey, this department is just never going to gather evidence of crime, well, that seems even worse. But the fact of the matter is, the reason I didn't have enough quality information when I was making a recording in July, frankly, having waited months before even bothering to address the issue, was that waiting game for accurate information to come out either through the media or through the district attorney's offices or law enforcement in Louisville and the state of Kentucky in general, or the federal government operating some sort of governance over the behavior, or in my opinion, the obvious at times misbehavior of the Louisville Police Department. I've noted some of those things in the past recording, you know, firing weapons at people, taking camera footage of events on the streets, for example. Part of the reason we don't have more information is that information was willfully being kept from us. You know, it's not unusual to hear in a corporate environment, uh, human resources leadership complain about water cooler conversations and hallway conversations and how they're often unproductive and some of the information that they have is wrong and the the rumor mill uh, tends to spread misinformation so much faster than even good information and all of those complaints. The antidote to that, of course, is facts. Truth trumps those kinds of problems. And by keeping facts from the public, by engaging in behavior that could rightfully be alleged to be suspicious in the realm of a potential cover-up, leaves gaps in information which leaves people to do the best that they can with the knowledge that they've got. Kentucky has rules about police wearing body cameras. Why weren't the cameras on these police? And if the answer isn't provided proactively well, then it's going to be deduced reactively. And, you know, if episode 231 of Inappropriate Conversations could be more accurate, I apologize for that. I also would hold accountable the people who 
probably have the truth and could have set the record straight faster. And it leads me back to questioning what is going on in the state of Kentucky that would lead to such a persistent set of misinformation. The other topic that's newsworthy that I could mention at the beginning of a talkback episode for Walk the Earth 5, I won't dive into because I frankly have been holding it willfully at an arm's distance. This entire notion of rushing in a Supreme Court justice nominee right before the election, or in point of truth, while the election is ongoing and happening even as we speak, I would bet you that most of us know somebody, or at least know somebody who knows somebody who has already cast their ballot for the presidential election in November because of the nature of COVID-19 and how the coronavirus has forced people to be very creative and proactive in how they vote. But rather than dealing directly with the issue of this particular nomination for the Supreme Court, I would just call everyone's attention to past episodes that are available on the feeds out at uh, inappropriateconversations.org and in podcatchers like uh, whatever iTunes is doing these days, Spotify, etc. In September 2018, episode 213 of Inappropriate Conversations had some introductory material about Brett Kavanaugh and other things related to the Supreme Court nomination, and in October, episode 214 also had introductory material related to the confirmation hearings. Although that is dealing with a past event now two years old, it is still some ways, in some ways relevant to things we're experiencing today. The fact of the matter is um, behavior, toxic behavior like doxing, has not changed or gone away in any manner, and it is still cutting widely across all corners of the political spectrum. So it's a bit of a big deal, and it's worth looking back to, if only to take in the, you know, say, first 15, 20 minutes of Inappropriate Conversations number 213 and 214, if anyone wants to know what's on my mind right now when it comes to the appointment of Supreme Court justices this late in an election year. Having said that, if you go back to this same time period, say from July through November in 2016, there's also plenty of, uh, of thoughts I've shared in the past about how open Supreme Court vacancies have been handled. And that's what's making me slow down a little bit and watch what's happening now with a more broad perspective. Um, It seems to me that this isn't just a 2020 event. What's happening right now with the potential appointment, with the nomination to fill a Supreme Court vacancy, uh, goes back in relevant news at least to 2016, all the way to now. And it's going to take a little bit of time to evaluate that time over time. Thanks for listening. Whether Sunday School Hour is the best type of small group. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Hello, I'm Greg. Welcome to Walk the Earth. Looking back at the church I left, on the question of small group, it's probably helpful to talk a little bit about what my experience has been with Sunday school 
and with other types of meetings to try to understand what's so challenging about trying to find a comparison or a replacement for that while my family and I are walking the earth, looking at a variety of different churches and trying to find a new place to worship on a regular basis. So where I came from, we would go to church every day in time for Sunday school hour. And I was a leader of a small group. We called ourselves unscripted in that we didn't have any standard reading material. We weren't working through any sort of liturgy. We weren't buying any materials and doing reading in preparation. The people who came to this group were all post-high school. So the goal was to try to maintain a group that could be relevant and have something to say or at least something to hear in terms of using two ears and one mouth in proper proportion to a college-age audience. Because we were finding, and I think this is true nationwide, if not worldwide in Christianity, that that age group between, say, 19 and 27 or so is a real gap, a real black hole in attendance. And most of that, I believe, is because the church no longer ministers to those particular types of people. If you're not getting married shortly after high school, or at least committing yourself to marriage during that college time, and you're trying to live as a single person in the world today, the church may not have a heck of a lot to offer to you. It certainly doesn't have an ear to hear or a shoulder to cry on very often. So we tried to provide that. More often than not, though, what we would see was couples of a little bit of an older age bracket, 30 to 50, and in some cases even older than that, who were comfortable with the unscripted format of the Sunday school. Occasionally, I would bring specific things that I was ready to talk about, We've done video series before and stuff where somebody would have something that they wanted to share and we'd bring in a laptop or something. But as often as not, I tried not to be too well choreographed to create space for anything that might come up either during the week in the nation or the world or even our community, but even in the lives of individuals who are regularly attending the Sunday school. The other thing is we didn't take any sort of attendance. For a while, we went through the ritual of filling out the booklet because the church secretary was tracking that sort of thing. But well and truly, it didn't matter to me if people came in late or if they left early. And ours was a course that sometimes would lead people to being very animated, very angry. Raised voices were probably more common in my classroom than in any of the others. But just as often, there was a great deal of fellowship and a great deal of kinship. And that was the most recent experience I had with Sunday school, being a very informal, quote-unquote, leader of the group. During the time that things began to get very challenging at church, however, we added a separate meeting. I felt like we needed to not be in the church building while dealing with some of the issues. We didn't want to get anywhere near the idea of gossiping. And once we knew that we had people who were thinking about going to church elsewhere— it was clear that our desire not to talk about the specific people and things and events that were troubling us sort of had to give way to the idea of giving those people who were deeply concerned about things like false accusations or other sort of hateful words, in some cases hateful letters distributed to the entire congregation, that these things needed to be spoken through or we were going to lose people who were part of our circle, part of our Sunday school group. And that group began meeting in my home. We settled into a pattern of every other Friday. It seemed like the right frequency. And for us, Friday was just the better day of the week to do. Once again, this is an unscripted group. And meeting without any sort of deadline or timeline. You sort of had a sense after an hour, an hour and a half, but sometimes longer, 
that time was up. We would more often than not end with prayer, and as often as not have something that was either theological or scriptural to discuss, but again, not with any sort of booklet, not with any sort of agenda. And that group is still meeting in my home today. But it's concerning that it's been more than six months now since it was obvious that this group was going to be a group of people meeting from different congregations, that some people had left the church earlier than others, and some people at the time they left the church have also left the group. Also, this group meeting in my home has a little bit more flexibility in terms of what it is we're willing to discuss, or maybe not so much what to discuss because we were discussing anything and everything on Sunday mornings, but how freely we might look at things and what sort of approach we would take. And that might have made some people uncomfortable. There are verses that I'm willing to share in a Sunday school, and then there's another set of verses that I'm willing to share and explore much more deeply in a much more informal small group setting. Here's the challenge we've had walking the earth, though, is that we have not successfully found a church that has a Sunday school hour to offer us. Now, I've complained about this to some friends before to say, if I had small children and I really felt like you know, religious education was an important piece of what we were looking for in a church, we'd be in serious trouble because we've gone to churches that don't have Sunday school at all, or at least suspend the Sunday school program during the summer. And we've gone to churches where we've been unhappy or dissatisfied with what the offerings were for Sunday school. One of the churches that we've attended more than any other, the Sunday school hour overlaps with the more contemporary worship service. So that church has a big swing between a worship service that is relatively close to Roman Catholic in its structure and style, and another one that basically has guitar, drums, keyboard, that sort of band playing hymns and religious songs, and a much more informal style in terms of the way the sermon or the message is given. But of the two, we'd much prefer to be in that later, more open service, the one that's less rigid, less liturgical. Unfortunately, the service that's more contemporary overlaps with Sunday school. So you almost, to join that church, would have to make a choice between do you want to be part of the worship service that you would only probably want to attend occasionally and therefore have a hard time latching onto a Sunday school in the later hour because most of the time you'd be missing that Sunday school to attend that worship service. And we kept finding this choice in lots of situations. Now, it's not the only option. There were options that we attended where a Sunday school would have been available. But in some of those cases, there were churches that we weren't necessarily interested in. One of our friends from the small group that we attend has urged us on more than one occasion to rethink the church that they're going to now, specifically because they really enjoy the Sunday school. But it's fascinating to me that the thing about the Sunday school they enjoy the most, I personally might find the most frustrating. It includes, well, it's led by a retired Baptist preacher. And although he's retired from being uh, actively pastoring a church, he hasn't retired or adjusted in any way any of his ideas. So I don't know that I would want to be the person who is in that class constantly arguing secondary issues with the person who's trying to lead the course. Now, you might say, why would you be arguing secondary issues? There's a couple of reasons for that. First, I think a good, vibrant, active, spirit-led small group is going to have really vibrant and active discussions. That's what I'm looking for in the Sunday school that I left and in the small group that I'm 
you know, I'm still a part of. So being an active contributor as opposed to a student in a teacher-student scenario is what I'm looking for. I don't know that I want to be somebody who needs to uh, raise his hand and be recognized in order to speak and to be told that there are certain topics which aren't allowed or certain um, verses which can't be discussed or certain answers which are unacceptable for no other reason than the teacher doesn't accept that point of view or accept that worldview. And the other reason is, well, you can say that that worldviews are relatively irrelevant, but secondary issue is an interesting concept because most people don't consider secondary issues to be all that secondary. So what do I mean by that? As Christians, the concept of Christianity is really fairly simple. It comes down to acknowledging that God has interacted in the world in three primary ways. That uh, creation is an act of God, that Jesus was God walking the earth, fully God and fully human, and that the Holy Spirit has been functioning in the lives of believers before Christ came, but certainly in a much more directed way after Jesus' death by crucifixion and later resurrection. It was the period of time right around the Last Supper and Garden of Gethsemane, shortly before his arrest, trial, and crucifixion, that Jesus spent a great deal of time in prayer and tried to do his best, according to the Gospel of John, to explain the Holy Spirit to his believers. These are primary issues. There are some who would add others, um, points of view about the Bible and, and its authorship and its importance. You know, that would be considered a primary issue by many people. Uh, for others, they would take not just Jesus' last days on earth, but his first days on earth as being a primary issue. But certainly there can be no question that when you get to things like the mode of baptism, whether a baptism can be the sprinkling of water on someone's head versus complete immersion in a tank versus complete immersion in a river, there are even some denominations that it wouldn't surprise me if they felt like any baptism that wasn't done in the Jordan River somewhere near, you know, Israel, that that's the only acceptable form. So all of these ways of doing things, ways of baptism, whether baptism should be done with a child or with an adult or both, or you know, how all those things play out, these sacramental questions are all, to me, secondary issues. But secondary issues that some people divide churches over. To me, the biggest secondary issue that I think I would really struggle with if I was participating in the Sunday school that our friends go to are questions related to gender. I'm not going to go into a great deal of detail here. I suspect that's going to be the next question raised in Walk the Earth. But to be participating in a class where the teacher of that Sunday school class assumes that the role of teacher gives him authority over everyone who attends his class... And furthermore, therefore believes that because of the role, the gender roles that he sees identified proscriptively in the Bible, that no woman should be allowed to teach a Sunday school class unless the students are all women or all children. I'm already going to have a bit of a problem with that on two fronts. First, I don't necessarily believe that any one person has authority, scripturally or otherwise, over another person. And I think that the book of Hebrews, frankly, rails against this idea. It's kind of an unbiblical concept that was being expressed. But being expressed specifically as a way of saying that there's more weight being given to the biblical interpretation offered by a man versus a woman, I have serious issues with that. So 
those kinds of secondary issues would keep me away from the Sunday school that some of my friends have recommended that I attend. We haven't made a second visit to that church. We told ourselves if we did, we would do so in a way that would include the Sunday school hour. But that hasn't necessarily happened yet. We have other churches to visit. And I guess I've mentioned before on Walk the Earth that there are times when I feel like I'm going from the car to the sanctuary and back to the car and visiting some of these churches for the first time, I really don't understand any more of the layout of the church than that. I've never, still, during this church search, gone to the restroom in one of the churches that we visited. I may have a concept of where the restrooms are located because I've seen a sign or I've seen a door, but I've never been in one. So I haven't dwelt in a church long enough to even ask myself the question of where is the Sunday school room? Where would you go? So if you got to the church an hour or so early in time to participate in Sunday school before the worship service started, that also raises the question that I would even be able to find my way to maybe any of the Sunday school classrooms or certainly which one would I be looking for? So, so far, no one in any of these church visits has taken us under their wing and offered to show us where we would go to if we wanted to participate in a small group, in small group Christian education, or even from an adult perspective, simply in small group Christian fellowship. And it makes me wonder if that's ever going to happen. So I want to talk to this from two different perspectives. A, why is a small group important to me? Because it really genuinely is. And B, what does it mean if my small group participation is never again part of a Sunday school? That's troubling, because for most of my church experience, by most I mean 95 plus percent, I've either been a member of a Sunday school class or the leader of a Sunday school class. Whether I was a kid attending Sunday school all the way up through junior high and high school, or a young adult, a new parent leading a Sunday school class, perhaps a very young kids where the message was really, really simple, frankly, too simple for my taste, or where I've been here lately, where I've either been attending adult Sunday school courses or helping to lead small group fellowship during the Sunday school hour, it's going to be strange to say, hey, maybe that's never going to happen again. But maybe it's never going to happen again. My church experience as a Protestant could be defined pretty accurately as Wesleyan. So if you grow up in the United Methodist Church, and that's kind of your experience, you're going to have a pretty good understanding of who John Wesley is and what John Wesley has taught. If you think about it from the perspective of inappropriate conversations, the you know main podcast on this feed, I've actually named John Wesley as a different drummer before. So there is previous episodes where looking for different drummers under the theology category, finding the one with John Wesley on it gives you a sense of kind of what I think about him and, and how he has influenced me. But one of the ways that he has been most influential has been in the area of small groups. Well, there's lots of Wesleyan sort of connections to be had out there. One of them is the Nazarene Church. So United Methodism doesn't have a corner on Wesleyan theology. I'm going to refer to a website called Holiness Today. It's www.ncnnews.com. And an article from the Nazarene Communications Network called John Wesley's Small Groups, Models of Christian Community. And for this, I want to just kind of focus on a couple quick paragraphs to explain Wesley's perspective. For Wesley, quoting, Living holy lives required believers to share their lives in intimate fellowship on a regular basis. 
His development of small groups revolutionized 18th century England and provided a framework to help people grow in holiness of heart and life. Small groups provided a context in which seekers could receive support, accountability, and encouragement. This was especially important considering the evils of society and the disarray of the culture. Wesley's system of mutual accountability was divided into three formative aspects, societies, classes, and bands. The article goes on to explain the difference between those three, but the main thing that I wanted to highlight was simply the importance and the centrality of small group meetings to John Wesley and to Wesleyan theology. If you wanted to form a small group, like perhaps in your home, as I've done, you could do worse if you were struggling for material and wanted to keep it open and free-flowing and not bound to any particular text. You could do a lot worse than simply looking at the kind of small group questions that date all the way back to when John Wesley was originally forming these societies and bands that he, he would have described as small group classes. Things like, am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? You could easily spend a good deal of time exploring that. And it's the right kind of question to ask. And I wonder sometimes when I listen to people who are, I would describe them as part of the religious right or part of the televangelist wing of the religious right, whether this is a question that they shouldn't be asking themselves more often. It seems to be a gap. In other aspects, questions can be as simple as, do I go to bed on time and get up on time? Do I pray about the money I spend or the way I spend money? Am I defeated in any part of my life? Do I insist upon doing something about which my conscience is uneasy? Do I thank God that I am not as other people, especially the Pharisee who despised the publican? I mean, that works both ways. I recently heard a sermon that explored this in a, in a really neat way to say, you know, we, we read the passage about the Pharisee who was praying about how great he was and judging the tax collector who was simply praying quietly in the corner for God's mercy. But we're usually judging the Pharisee when we read that passage, which means on some level we're missing the point entirely by being someone who's judging ourselves as being self-righteously better than someone else. Here's a question that you don't hear people asking all that often. Is Christ real to me? These are the kind of things that John Wesley would have recommended that small groups get together to do. That would have included other things. I would not describe the group that meets in my home as an accountability group. We're not spending a great deal of time in direct confessional with one another. And I think that's still consistent with Wesley's vision because we're too large and too fluid of a group for that. That kind of accountability partnership requires a fairly exclusive one-on-one -on -one relationship. Wesley and others have suggested that that really only works if there's a gender divide, so that there may be classes where mixed genders attend and participate, but when you get to that question of accountability bans, it needs to be gender segregated. Again, we'll get to gender the next time I do a walk the earth. I don't expect there's going to be a, as big a gap this time, and part of it is because I sort of knew that there was no way I could discuss everything on my mind about this topic without hitting the next one. Because I participated in small groups in other ways. Small group doesn't have to be Sunday school. It doesn't have to be something based out of your home. I participated in what I call parachurch activities, where members of different congregations, even different denominations, get together to share in fellowship or to worship or to hear a message, but also to prepare for things that they do and direct outreach to others. In some cases, 
that's outreach within prison, inside prison ministry. In another case, it's outreach within the church. Because at times, I think it's fairly obvious to a lot of us who are Christians, that outreach within the church is just as important. The problems that I had with the church that I left reflected a great deal of spiritual death that was happening there. And if something could be done to reach those people, to reintroduce them to the Holy Spirit and bring their Christian walk back to life, well, you'd certainly want to do that. I've participated in those kinds of of group meetings before. Tempted to call them small groups. In their nature, they feel like a small group, but you're actually talking about more than 100 people. And even when they're um, meeting separately for like weekend events, it's always a men's weekend and a women's weekend. It's always segregated. But you're still talking about somewhere between 30 and 65 people. It's bigger than what we think of as being a small group. But the small group dynamic is still in place. There are um, things that are done to get to know one another, to worship together, to work and prepare for the weekend events together that do create a certain bond and open up a window for that kind of accountability. So really as an account of people, it's not that the group has to be five or less for it to work. It's just that there has to be some sort of commitment there. We've had people who have not joined our group for more than a couple of months, maybe more than three months now. If they were to join us this upcoming Friday, I'd be delighted to see them. We would welcome them in. It would be as though they'd never left. And in fact, it would be more than that. It would be a great joy. Because based on the status of the fact that we all met inside one church home and have then been essentially separated seeking other church homes, there'd be a lot of questions to answer, primarily along the lines of what are they finding as they've walked the earth? Did they find a quick alternative and land there? That's fine. My question would be, what's it like? What led you to so quickly attach? Um, We know some people who have already joined another congregation. So a process that I always considered to be something like a year long in terms of joining, some people do much more quickly than that. And there are good reasons for it. And I support them in that, just as I had hoped that they would support me in being much more thorough. I shared with a couple from that group uh, a few weeks ago that when we joined the church that we all recently left, I had attended that church pretty regularly for almost a year before we joined, and it had been well more than a year from the first time we attended to when we actually joined in membership. And during that span of time, I kept every church bulletin from every Sunday that we attended. They were alarmed by that, as was the pastor who was there at the time when I shared that not long after we joined. I was looking for false teaching. I was looking for hypocrisy and inconsistency. I was trying to ensure that what was happening there was genuinely spirit-led. And if it wasn't, I felt like having a reference point, uh, having something to spur my memory on what we had seen and what we'd experienced on any given Sunday, would help me kind of sniff out anything that, for want of a better term, just didn't smell right. So, here's my concern. How long will the small group, meeting in my home, of people who have, by and large, sought other congregations to worship in. How long will that fellowship last? We've had weeks that we've had to cancel due to out-of-town travel. We've had weeks that we ended up canceling because no one was able to come. We've also had weeks where there was you know, closer to 10 people than a handful. So it really has varied a lot. But I get the sense that there's a genuine concern that this may not be sustainable. And if that day comes then I will find myself suddenly part of no small group 
whatsoever. I finally had a conversation with a pastor. I mentioned a couple shows back that this was inevitably going to happen. It was just a matter of time. You darken enough church doors, and you revisit the places that you like, and eventually people are going to start asking questions. And I had an opportunity to spend some time with the pastor of a church that we've enjoyed. It's the church that doesn't necessarily have a church right now. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Maybe I'll finish today's show with a couple of ideas and thoughts along those lines. But he shared with me that he wasn't necessarily concerned about what was ultimately going to happen with Sunday school. Again, I don't know how I'd feel about that if I had small kids, but maybe he was making a distinction between adult education and nursery slash childhood education, what you might call junior church, because you could do the equivalent of child education if children were getting their own separate message during the worship service, a children's hour that corresponded with part of the actual worship. I've seen that a lot in a lot of Protestant churches, where at some point the children will leave. They'll either be called up for a special children's message, and then they'll go off to do their own activities in Sunday school classrooms somewhere else in the church, or the children have their own Sunday school, their own worship hour, separate from the rest of the congregation anyway. I personally like having kids around, so it doesn't bother me if if a church doesn't follow that pattern. But speaking specifically of, of adult Sunday school hour type education and fellowship, this pastor indicated that he was you know, had an open mind about it, let's put it that way, and that whatever might happen there would just happen. Because with them being in a temporary facility, it's a little bit hard. Once again, I don't know where the Sunday school that I would attend in any church I've visited all summer long, even to this point, is. And I don't have a concept of where that Sunday school might meet in a temporary place either. So there's a really good chance that as this walking the earth carries forth, One of the most important concepts from John Wesley that I really do still hold dear is in some jeopardy because of the small group in my home at some point calls it quits. I won't have a replacement that I've identified in any church we've visited so far that makes sense to me. And I don't know what it would be like to not have a small group. I'm also wondering, though, is this a sign? I'm not a superstitious person. I don't spend a lot of time looking at tea leaves. I'm certainly not the poem reader tarot card type. By sign, I don't mean that um, something necessarily mystical and magical is happening. It could be understood, if you're a very logical person, as I try to be, as discerning the trend. If there's a trend going on where none of the places that I'm worshiping when I'm visiting have a Sunday school offer that works for me, maybe it's going to be an indication, if not really a sign. I kind of like the word sign, that I'm not supposed to be participating in Sunday school the way I used to. That I've reached a certain age, and I've had a certain amount of frustration with certain parts of church life, that maybe this is something that would need to go. I don't have the answer to that question, except to say that it makes me uncomfortable. Here's something that doesn't make me uncomfortable, though. Again, visiting with that pastor from the church that is in between buildings, for want of a better word, talking a little bit about what the vision is for what the next building might be. And it's an interesting question, and I don't know what their answer is going to turn out to be, and I don't know how I'm going to react to whatever their answer is. But at this stage, I'm just as interested in the concept of a church that doesn't make itself all about its building. Because I left a church that unfortunately had a lot of members 
who committed what I consider the sin of making their focal point all about the building? What if the church was simply a place where people gathered from time to time, but on just as many Sundays as not, they were gathering together as a group of people to do something worshipful? And by worshipful, I mean out in the world, making a difference, or joining with other congregations to strategically participate in either an activity or a worship service. Maybe every single church that gets together and tries to do the will of God doesn't have to construct its own cathedral. Maybe it's enough to have a serviceable facility, a building that is suitable for worship, because in more or less the same building or the same resources within the building, the space is used to gather food for the hungry and the homeless or to provide shelter for people who are in need. That's an interesting church concept. It's one that has been hypothetically floated my way, and one that interests me quite a bit, and has raised a question in my mind for the first time in this Walk the Earth process, of whether it's necessary to join any one church. Or if you join a church, and place yourself strategically in ministry with them, is it then a big deal if from time to time you still occasionally worship with others? I don't have an answer to this question that I've asked myself. I certainly don't have an answer to this question from anyone else in my family. Although I did float the idea to say, what if we decide that we'd have a couple of different churches that we'd like to continue attending? Is it the end of the world to support two different churches with your presence by being there, with your gifts by offering financial support, with your prayers, and with your service? The service part is the part that really speaks to me. Could we serve in two different soup kitchens operated through two different congregations on two different Sundays? Well, obviously you could. And anybody who can't offer prayers for more than one congregation at a time is kind of missing the point. These are things I'm going to ponder as I've begun to think not just what would it mean if I didn't have a Sunday school, but what did it mean if I didn't end up with a church in the traditional sense of the word? If I wasn't making a like-for-like trade in terms of what turned out to be a 15-year commitment to a single congregation, at some point on Walk the Earth, we're going to talk about the concept of tithing. And my question there is going to be, if tithing is this notion of giving, do you measure that by how much you give to any one church? Or do you measure that by how much you're giving and how much you're giving up and how much you're, you're doing And maybe that should be measured across everything that you do, not just one individual home church. I feel fairly strongly about this, particularly if that one individual home church is using an overwhelming majority of that money to do nothing more than build or support a very large sanctuary. You don't see, in biblical texts like the Acts of the Apostles, a lot of influence on building gigantic, ornate sanctuaries. What you see is people going from place to place, in ministry within each other, joining small groups or creating small groups, and worshiping together in word and in truth. We've already talked about how the church itself is not a building, and that you don't have to be inside a sanctuary to worship. So, what does it mean to take that one step further and suggest that maybe... Just maybe. The focal point of this activity isn't actually joining a church at all. It's finding a community, 
a small group, or maybe even a large group, if you will, through which you can be a part of doing ministry. I'll let you know when I find an answer to that question. Join me in prayer, if and as you are led. Eternal Creator, Lord, you are always working in our lives. I heard a pop song once, God, that said, There's a Savior born every day in the valley of your soul. Lord, I believe that you are still creating. I believe that you are still saving. I believe that you are still making a sacrificial atonement on behalf of all of us. And I believe that your Holy Spirit is still speaking words of truth and telling us what it is you have in mind, what your plans are, not just for me and my family, but for everyone, for those who, as Jesus said in the Bible, have ears to hear. Lord, I'm listening still and contemplating what it means if the point of Christian education has passed my family by. I believe, Lord, that you can educate, inform, and guide me in any structure that I may find myself, whether that be something we call a Sunday school, or something that we call a small group, or even a much larger congregational-type situation. I just need to have an open mind that says, I will follow you, Lord, wherever you lead me. If you lead me back into a situation that looks alarmingly similar to what I've just left, then your will be done, God. But if instead you lead me to something that looks so little like the church today, that it simultaneously begins to look a lot more like the church that you immediately left behind after your walk on this earth, then so be it, Lord. Your will be done. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. You shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. Our next question will be whether gender plays a role in the experience of worship. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.